0: Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast or are new to it, I thank you very much. I would also appreciate it if you took a moment and followed it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. S.M. Sterling is a writer by trade, born in France, but Canadian by origin and American by naturalization living in New Mexico at present. His hobbies are mostly related to the craft. He loves history, anthropology, and archaeology, and is interested in the sciences. Martial arts are his main physical hobby. I was introduced to him by Bill Fawcett, an earlier guest on this podcast. Steve has at least 10 New York Times bestselling Novels and many awards, including the Dragon Con Dragon Award. So my first question to him was, what do you recommend I read as an intro to your work? Black Chamber was his response. It was also the title he won the Dragon Award for. Intense, gripping, wonderful alternate history, but more on this later. Steve is also helping me out by providing a few introductions to upcoming re-releases of earlier L. Ron Hubbard titles, including Typewriter in the Sky, which we will also be discussing in this interview. Welcome, Steve. Glad to be here. So I very much appreciate your uh, taking some time to to be with me on this podcast. Um, I guess my first thing is, when I look at your bibliography, you write in multiple genres. Did you always diversify, or did you start with one genre and then expand?
1: Well, back when I started writing, there weren't so many sub-genres that were acknowledged, Uh, but that was coming. I sold my first novel, Snow Brother, in uh, 1983, and the uh, editor called me up from New York, which had me doing a little happy dance and striving to be calm. (laughs) And said they wanted to take it, but they wanted to uh, play up the fantasy element. And I said, "But I thought it was post-apocalyptic, uh, post-apocalyptic science fiction." And she said, "Well, fantasy will, is more suitable to what the openings we have." And I said, "It's fantasy." And uh, <laughs> I easy. added, "I'm easy." I added an evil wizard in twenty thousand words, and there and away we went. That's not an uncommon uh, thing to happen. Diana Gabaldon, who writes the enormously successful Outlander series, Uh um, submitted the first one and was talking to the editor and the editor mentioned that they were going to market it as romance. And she said, but it's science fiction, time travel. And the editor said, well, if it's science fiction, it sells 60,000 copies. And if it's romance, it sells 280,000. And she said, it's romance. (laughs) I had that for her. So genres are a marketing category more, more than anything else. I mean, they do have some sort of objective, uh, objective existence, but basically they're to help the readers go to the thing they want. Right. And now, that's part of the editorial and publishing function.
0: So basically, because you've got so many different series that look at, you know, you got the, the Conquistador and the Shadows of Falling Night and the Black Chamber and, you know, just several different series. is like, are these basically that same basic modus operandi, that it's just what the audience
1: wants or what they have available to sell? Well, life's too short to try chasing trends if you're an author. And also, the delays inherent in writing and getting books published mean that by the time you catch up to a trend, it's gone somewhere else. So basically, what I do is I write the book I'd like to read. Um, I still read a lot of fiction, although less than I did before I started writing. And If I have a book in mind, if characters come to me or scenes come to me, I play with that. And if it develops, uh, I go with it. Um, Sometimes scenes and characters just pop up into my mind, sort of like a waking dream. But you can't count on that. Uh, The inspiration fairy is not always going to be there to to, uh, sprinkle uh, dust on uh, on your head. So if you're a professional, you have to be able to get right up to that level deliberately and consciously as well. Um, so I write the book I'd like to read, and so far, a lot of people have agreed with me.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. So then, as you're talking about, you know, we went over this earlier and as preparing for this, you made reference to the Inspiration Fairy, and, but you also said that grinding hard work in your research, how does that play into coming up with ideas?
1: Uh, it's less a matter of, well, there's a subconscious element. Um, I've always been a uh, fanatical history reader. It's one of the miracles of the American educational system that it can make history dull Uh uh, because history is just full of stories. Um, And also there's a joke in the field that uh, world building, which is the process of creating a world uh, different from the one we live in, is good occupational therapy for lunatics who think they're God because a world is too vast and too complex for any single imagination to, uh, to make a, an adequate copy. So you're necessarily going to be taking elements from the, uh, from the real world, from history. One of the main differences between history and fiction is that fiction has to be plausible, but history doesn't. History is full of wild coincidences and the most grotesquely unlikely things happening. For example, in, in 1872, the American Civil War was, pre- was reaching uh, a crisis point Uh, Britain and France were seriously thinking of recognizing the Confederacy, which would have doomed the the Union's war effort. And they were waiting. Gladstone had actually written the speech in England, uh, written the speech uh, acknowledging it, and they were waiting for the next Confederate victory. And there'd been a fair number of those by that time. Lee was invading uh, the North uh, into Maryland. And at that time, a Confederate courier had wrapped a set of, Lee's Special Order 191, which outlined where every part of the Confederate army was, where they were supposed to meet up and what his objectives and strengths were. And he wrapped it around three cigars. The cigars fell out of his pocket. It was picked up by a union soldier. The union soldier read it rather than just throwing it away and smoking the cigars and got it to an officer. uh, He handed it up. Eventually it got to someone who'd gone to West Point with the person who um, who wrote the dispatch and recognized it as genuine, they got it to General McClellan. Now, McClellan was a great organizer, but a, really not a very good field general at all. And he said, when it, once he'd read the order, if I cannot whip Bobby Lee with what is in these orders, then I will go home. Well, he didn't whip Bobby Lee, but he did manage to fight him to a standstill at Antietam. It was the biggest shock of Lee's career. And Lee withdrew after that. So the Confederates didn't have a victory. Gladstone and the uh, Napoleon III, the French emperor, didn't announce uh, that they were recognizing the Confederacy and shortly thereafter Lincoln came out with the Emancipation Proclamation and that changed the whole international tenor of the war and made foreign intervention very unlikely. So you can say that the whole history of the United States came to a crisis point and it was settled because someone didn't notice three cigars falling out of his pocket. Now if I put that in a book, other than an alternate history directly referencing that thing that happened, there would be a chorus of, well, no, that's just implausible. You can't have the plot turning on a wild coincidence like that. Um, but that's the way things actually happen. That's fascinating. So, that's really fascinating, but that's so true. Yeah, the same, the same things happen, um, well, Harry Turtle did a series uh, based on that coincidence. It's the 191 timeline. It's alternate histories. The Black Chamber series that you mentioned starts with Black Chamber, oddly enough, um, (laughs) is uh, based on um, another historical coincidence in 1912. Teddy Roosevelt, who had become quite a radical by then, was running for the uh, nomination of the Republican Party for the elections that year. he was enormously popular, both in the country and in the Republican Party. Um, But the old guard of the Republican Party, the guys who controlled the patronage and Taft, were terrified of him because he'd become he'd had he had a number of radical proposals he wanted and they conspired to deny him the nomination even though most of the party's uh, rank and file wanted it and there were shenanigans that went on you wouldn't believe up to and including murder by the way eventually despite the fact that teddy won most of the primaries they managed to deny him a majority of the delegates at the convention he bolted and ran on the progressive party ticket um and alone of third party candidates in US history, he came second. Taft came third, but he won enough votes to deny Roosevelt the victory. Now, Taft was an interesting guy and one of his interesting features was his girth. Teddy Roosevelt had been the first American, one of the first Americans to study jujitsu and he'd done falls with uh, Taft in the White House. And the whole building shook when he threw Taft. Taft weighed 360 pounds in 1912. He had a special bathtub installed in the White House because he got stuck in the original one. But nevertheless, he lived a long life and physical. And uh, Teddy Roosevelt, who was a physical fitness enthusiast, died in 1919. So in my alternate history, Taft gets the news that he's lost the Ohio primary. Ohio was his home state. And vapor locks and dies in his sleep. Now, this was actually not in the least implausible because he was leading a very unhealthy lifestyle. He stress ate because he he was feeling very stressed going against his old friend roosevelt in the campaign uh, and he put on 40 pounds on top of uh, a very large total to begin with so it would have been totally plausible eating a rich diet being grossly overweight not exercising that he had a heart attack now at the same time uh, taft's vice president sherman was already sick this happened in in both timelines he had brights disease uh, kidney failure and he died before the end of the year so with that happening, Roosevelt gets the nomination, sweeps the victory, which would have been inevitable. Wilson didn't win a majority in any state that hadn't been a member of the Confederacy. Uh, the Democrats were primarily a regional party at that time, and a southern regional party. He only won because the non-democratic vote was split. Roosevelt sweeps in, renames the Republicans the Progressive Republican Party, and enacts a whole bunch of reforms, becomes very famous. This has add-on effects, and it, it changes the course of World War One. The Kaiser, uh, who knew Roosevelt, he'd met him several times, had a severe case of Teddy envy because Theodore Roosevelt was all the things that the Kaiser desperately wanted to be but knew that he wasn't. Like he was a military hero, he's a great political leader, he was enormously popular, he was a scholar who'd written works that were widely respected. So he tries to imitate Teddy. Teddy, on the other hand, is also imitating some things that uh, the Germans were doing, like subsidizing scientific research. He founds the, an Institute of Advanced Research. Kaiser Wilhelm already had one. It was the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute. It's been renamed since, obviously. So he doubles the subsidy to his research institute, and that means that certain things are discovered a little earlier. And that affects history, and it spins out. And that's the background for my series, which is basically sort of spy thriller intrigue. I don't use Teddy Roosevelt as the main character. I've noticed that if you make a really high official, a national leader, uh, a general in charge of a vast army, the main character, you've got a real challenge on your hands because what leaders mostly do is go to meetings and listen to reports. Now, you can make going to meetings and listening to reports interesting, but boy, is it a challenge. Sure. Whereas whereas people further down the tree actually do um, dashing and intriguing things by themselves. So, sorry, it's... uh, No, that's... that's
0: That's great, because it's getting into an area that I was going to address anyway on that, on that book. Because, yeah, I saw that you did that, and you have instead, you've got Luce O'Malley. How do you pronounce her last name? Arostegui? Arostegui. Arostegui. Luce O'Malley Arostegui. Arostegui. So she's an amazing kick-ass chick. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, if you're going to have a uh, a James Bond-style heroine, they have to be. Boy, she sure there is that. Amazing, there are amazing people out there who can do it like uh, things you wouldn't believe were humanly possible. Like some people can learn a language fluently in a month. She has that talent. Right. Um, I think it may have been because she grew up bilingual. Her mother was Cuban and her father was uh, Irish American. But in any case, uh, she can learn languages easily and readily, which for a spy is a real talent. For sure. And to be able to
0: recognize different uh, nuances in other people who are also spies
1: in mastering other languages that aren't their own. Yeah. And you've got to be able to pick up, uh, you've got to be good at people in that situation. You've got to be able to pick up on clues, tell when someone's telling the truth and when they're not, that sort of thing.
0: Now, is she based on somebody real or she's just an amalgam of of real characteristics or how did she... Well, there are elements
1: of her story that are based on people from the era. I had to do a lot of research, but that's just nuts and cream to me. I love reading about things and I've been a Teddy Roosevelt fan since my youth. The books all start with a quote from Teddy Roosevelt, and it's amazing how many good quotes he had. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a prologue in which Roosevelt is a main character, you know, setting up the situation. Correct. And then I, de- I transfer to Liz' the main viewpoint character, and I have an epilogue, usually when she meets Roosevelt, and uh, they tie thing- and, and ties up the knots. Roosevelt would be a wonderful character, but I'd have to do uh, something with him before he became president. And He did everything you could imagine. Um, He was a cowboy, well, a rancher in the Dakotas in the 1880s. He rode uh, roundups. He was in a stampede at night once in which he was galloping along with thousands of uh, stampeding cattle. He rode into an arroyo and his horse did a complete somersault in the air. And he was tossed free, and the horse came down on its back and got up again, and he got back in the saddle and, and rode off after the herd. Um, the odds of coming alive out of that were not good. Right. Uh, there was a mad French count ranching in the same area. I'm not kidding. And the mad French count was trying to start a meatpacking industry in the Dakotas in the mid-1880s, and he wanted to run Roosevelt out of the, out of the area. So he hired a gunman who said that uh, he was going to shoot Roosevelt on sight. Roosevelt rode up to the guy's house where he was sitting on the porch, asked him his name. He said his name, and he said, my name is Theodore Roosevelt. I've heard that you're going to shoot me on sight. Here I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He, uh, Roosevelt came into a saloon, it was a sort of saloon tavern in hotel restaurant uh, about the same time. He'd come a long way. He sat down and ordered a steak. There was a drunken gunman shooting the place up at the time. And he came over to Roosevelt and aimed both his colts at him after shooting the mirror out and several bottles and said, four eyes is going to buy everyone a drink. And uh, Roosevelt stood up with the gunman pointing the pistols at him from about three feet away and said, well, if I must, I must. And then he knocked him out with a left right to the jaw. The guy fell down, hit his head on the brass rail of the bar, and they dragged him out and locked him in a shed for the night. Then Roosevelt sat down and ate his steak. Um, <laughs> That's the sort of thing you can't put into books, or at least you have to be very careful when you do. So, you know, he survived that. He survived leading the Rough Riders. 20% of the Rough Riders were killed or wounded going up San Juan Hill. Roosevelt had like four pairs of spare glasses on him at the time because he was blind as a bat like me without them. One pair was shot off his face by a Spanish seven millimeter Mauser bullet, which means that it was about one inch from killing him. But he went up and he survived. And that, of course, launched, uh, launched him to the presidency. Uh, and then everyone expected him when he became vice president in 1900 to vanish because it was a political death sentence at the time. So Roosevelt had accepted it reluctantly. He'd been elected governor of New York. The Republican machine boss in New York at the time wanted to get rid of him because he was a reformer and the machine was thoroughly corrupt. So he started a draft Roosevelt for vice president uh, campaign, much against Roosevelt's wishes. It it succeeded. Roosevelt became vice president, and then McKinley got assassinated four months later. (laughs) So (laughs) we're talking another string of unlikely coincidences. Roosevelt once said that the only worthwhile thing he did while vice president, apart from maintaining a pulse and breathing, was to save some dogs from a mountain lion on a hunting trip in um, in the Rocky Mountains. What he didn't usually specify was that he saved the dogs by leaping off his horse onto the mountain lion's back, and stabbing it to death with a Bowie knife. Um, it was a 215-pound male. It was a record cougar. Uh, the record wasn't broken until the 1980s. And that he's so he's the only president of the United States to leap on a 215-pound cougar and stab it to death with a Bowie knife. But he's also the only U.S. president who rescued a kitten from dogs while he was president, and then walked around the White House neighborhood for two hours looking for a home for it. So, really, wow. an extraordinary
0: person. Very mm-hmm. extraordinary. But you're right. That's like, it's, it's too strange to be fiction.
1: Yeah. Or it's too strange to be fiction unless you're careful and don't do too many of that type of thing. Right. But you know, whenever someone accuses me of, of like having outrageous coincidences in fiction, I just mention stuff from history. Like World War I started because Gavrilo Princip uh, shot Franz Ferdinand, even right. part of a band of Serb assassins who were trained and sent in to Sarajevo to to assassinate him, only it was the Keystone cops. One of the the conspirators just lost his nerve and disappeared. Um, One threw a bomb, but it missed. Gavrello gave up and went to a tavern to have lunch. Franz Ferdinand decided to visit the people injured by the bomb. His car took a wrong turning, and the engine stalled right in front of the cafe where Princip was just coming out. And then he shot. He shot Franz Ferdinand. And during the course of the, uh, of the rounding up of the conspirators, one took a, a cyanide pill, which they'd been given in case they were captured, but it turned out the cyanide was past its sell-by date and it just made him sick. And another one jumped into a river to drown, but the river was only two feet deep that time of year. <laughs> so it was found floundering around in the mud. You know, it, as I said, if you, if you, if you put that into a, a book, you'd have to really work hard to justify it.
0: Right. That's amazing. That's truly amazing on that stuff. But, that's, but this is good. And that's something that I think people listening to this, especially the aspiring writers or upcoming writers, I mean, this shows like having that type of research and that knowledge of, of fact can actually help on putting
1: together fiction too. So, you know, like you can work Fastly. out,
0: you can help with, with parameters like
1: that. Yeah, you have to read a lot of fiction, too, because, you know, there's the craft of the business, making your characters believable, making dialogue believable. Right, right. And before this started, you were mentioning how the, the editor editing process for the podcast. Yeah. You do something very like that when you're writing dialogue. If you actually listen to dialogue, and one of the things I do is I listen to people's conversations. It's a, it's a good excuse for eavesdropping. And human conversations are full of lacunae of sentences that aren't completed, of ums and ahs, of awkward pauses. You cannot put too much of that into written dialogue. Written dialogue isn't an exact transcription of human conversations. It's more of a editing of human conversation. You've got to put some of that stuff in or the, or the dialogue appears stilted, but you can't put too much in.
0: Right, that's, that's actually a very good point. And that's also part of just what you're saying. You've got to listen, you got to look and listen part of your research
1: yeah the saddest thing i meet is aspiring writers who've got talent and energy but can't read their own stuff the way a stranger would because you've got an ideal version of your text in your mind when you're writing and you try to get it actually onto paper or these days screens and the way to do that is to come back to it a little later read it and distance yourself so you're reading it as if someone who doesn't have that ideal version in their mind is reading it. And that way you can see what you're doing wrong. That way you can improve yourself. There are some people who just can't do that. The ideal version in their head overpowers what they see on the screen. And that is very sad because people like that can't improve. And there are occasional writers who start out really good, but I'm not one of them and neither are most people who actually make it in writing. You have to be able to improve.
0: Yeah. It's like, I guess, for me, it, it, the, the obvious thing is a person when he gets up in the morning and looks in the mirror and he, he poses a certain way. So he doesn't see that he's gained 40 pounds and he doesn't see the this or the that. It's just he yeah. sees what he wants to see. And
1: yeah. when human beings are like that. They don't actually see their environment. They see bits of it overlaid with, with stuff that's sort of in a file in their heads. Yeah. Which is why seeing a completely unfamiliar object is often very difficult. You have to look at it for a while before you can actually comprehend it. Because it's not in it's not in the files,
0: right? Which is why the marketing tech of uh, positioning became so powerful. When introducing new products, you have to like, well, it's like, you know, a Mm -hmm. blah. So, oh, okay, I know what it is then. So, is this part of why you write? um, You have so many different series going, so that you can then always maintain like a fresh or constant. it keeps you from getting into a certain groove that you can't break out of because you've got so many different
1: types of storylines going, it seems like. Yeah, that's always a threat. Uh, I have one very long series. It starts with uh, Dies the Fire,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. a sort of spin off of Island Mm -hmm. in the Sea of Time. And I wrote 15 books in that series. And I wrote other stuff in the interims just precisely to prevent myself from getting stale and repeating the same tropes over and over again. That is a threat if you've got a long, uh, long continuing series. Um, one of the reasons I write a lot of alternate history is that you're setting things in the real world. And the real world is so various and has so much weird stuff in it, that uh, it, it helps keep you from, from getting too uniform, getting too much into a groove. That makes sense.
0: Now, I also noticed too, like you've, um, that one series, The General with David Drake, you'd Well, actually, what do you find as different on on writing with someone else as compared to
1: just doing solo? Collaborations, ah, yes. I did a fair number of collaborations, particularly when I was uh, starting out as a writer. Um, The publisher I was with at the time, Bain Books, uh, favored them as a way of, uh, well, you know, you had an established writer and a a younger writer, and they worked together. The established writer usually did the outline and the new writer did the grunt work. Dave was um, much more established at that time than I was. He, in particular, showed me how to outline. Dave does books of hundred to 150,000 words, but he writes a 35,000-word outline before, detailing every scene. He's a, uh, not what they call, a seat-of-the-pants writer. Right. I am a seat-of-the-pants writer, or at least I was until then, and he taught me how to outline. Besides which, they were very good outlines, and I found it oddly liberating. I didn't have to worry about plot. I could just concentrate on making each scene as good as possible. They paid me the compliment afterward of saying that it was the book he'd have written if he had both our knowledge bases, um, which was, was fun. And I really enjoyed Dave's work. So we were very compatible. Some other collaborations were not quite as, as much. Anne McCaffrey, I wrote a book with her and she gave me a one page outline for the whole book. Um, <laughs> But it was in, it was in one of her established universes, uh, so I just read up on on her stuff and attempted to uh, to operate in more or less the same uh, the same way. What Although book? I'm a, what
0: book was that? Because I was I'm an absolute fan of Am. She was a
1: dear friend. Uh, yeah, she was great. She was a great writer and a great and a really interesting person. I, I Indeed. I, I only met her like four or five times, but every time was uh, was an was an experience that I cherished. Uh, that was. The, the Ship Who Fought. Oh, the Ship think. Who Fought.
0: Okay. She was such an amazing, she loved, as, as a judge, she loved helping out the new writers. And um, it was great whenever she came here to the Writers of the Future uh, workshop and the events and stuff. And she loved her root beers and she loved her cinnamon. Those were her, her favorite spice and her favorite drink. And I shared her mm-hmm. with uh, Pat Henry at Dragon Con. We'd bring her out from Ireland and he'd bring her to uh, Atlanta
1: for Dragon Con and send her home. DragonCon is a great con, by the way. It's got a lot of energy. And it's so huge that you can find a significant number of people who are interested in the things you're interested in. You know, So there's like 85,000 people. There's going to be at least a 1,000 who are interested in what you are. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's a,
0: now, in terms of other so – anyway, so what you said on doing the, the co-author, um, that's just to be able to help bring up a, another author who's, uh, who's growing to help and that was, it, is that a tool mostly done by Bain or is it something?
1: Cause like we've, I've got certain. It happens occasionally at other publishers. Bain makes more or less a specialty of it.
0: Yeah. Cause I know that like Larry Niven and Jerry Purnell, just, they loved working together. Sean Williams uh, does a lot, um, but they do this stuff and they, they work it back and forth and and have quite a, an industry with that.
1: Yeah. Larry, uh, Larry Niven and Jerry were uh, equal partners, of course. Yeah. They're, they're both, you know, like very distinguished science fiction writers. I've I done collaborations with both Larry Niven and Jerry Pornell myself. That's cool. And they were both extremely interesting to work with. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Completely, dif- completely different, but very interesting. Yeah, yeah. I plotted so, one book, Walking Through the Hills, over uh, Jerry's hotel in the L.A. Basin, and he had a pet that was half, a dog that was half wolf. He used to go on the visit- go along on the walks with us. That was interesting. I'm sure it was.
0: So um, in t- we've been going over a lot of uh, things already on how-to of writing, but any other particular advice that you have? Because you attend a lot of, like you said, you love Dragon Con, and, and it's, I agree, it's, it's my favorite convention now. I used to go, and then I stopped for a while, and then uh, when they restructured it back in the early 2000s, I connected back up again and have, and have really enjoyed it. Pat Henry has... Uh, really done a lot with writers and illustrators of the future. He was our, our keynote speaker a few years ago, and after that he made sure we've got we got front and center display in the art gallery, and we always had panels for both the writers and illustrators and we have they give us like prime space at, in the convention itself because we always invite our past winners to come in and we set up a table for them to s- signings at so he's just he 's really supportive of the contest because of what it does for the aspiring writer, but it 's such an amazing convention. That was where uh, I first
1: became aware of writers of the future in Galaxy. Wow! It was drag- as you say, you've got a pre- you've got a big presence there, and it's uh, it's a lot of it's really fascinating and interesting. Yeah. Um, I uh, I knew of L. Ron Hubbard mostly through his early fiction, so you know I have a different perspective on him from a, a lot of people. I'm con- I'm mostly aware of him as a science fiction writer, so. Uh, um, it's been interesting to see that his uh, his legacy is helping so many new writers, writers of the future, writers of the future, and their contests and so forth. have helped a lot of people get started. Yeah, it's yeah. really worthwhile.
0: Great, thank you. So as you mentioned this, um, we had when we f- when we first spoke, I was um, I was introduced to you by Bill Foster because I was looking for somebody to uh, write an introduction for our, um, some of our books, and uh, it turns out that. Um, you said, yeah, I'd like to do an intro for Typewriter in the Sky. We actually had one. It was done by Mike Resnick, who passed away. And so mm-hmm. um, his his intro would have needed quite a bit of uh, rewrite. So mm-hmm. um, I then spoke to you, and then you said, I love that. You know, I read that before. I'd like to write one for that. And so you've reread it. Um, mm-hmm. I found it very interesting, the, the introduction that you wrote for uh, Typewriter in the Sky. Um, mm-hmm. And the first thing, I was impressed with your uh, knowledge of pulp fiction overall. Did, mm-hmm. these, did the pulp fiction provide inspiration or how-to approach to writing for you? Or how did oh, h- you yes. came to
1: know so much? Well, I started reading science fiction seriously in the 1960s. And a lot of the pulp classics were being reprinted at the time. Uh, Lancer was doing the um, Robert E. Howard's Conan and uh, other stuff. Um, stuff that Sprague de Camp had done in an un- unknown magazine back in the 30s and 40s, um, and that's where I first heard "Typewriter in the Sky" mentioned. Back then, it was hard to it was hard to get a hold of in those days. Uh-huh. I, I eventually did track it down, and I was like, it was a delight to read. Um, if you knew the 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 organization of the pulps and and the the various subgenres within them. Um, it was obvious that the, the author knew the pulp world intimately. Well, he was a writer for them, but also that uh, he had a, a both an affectionate and an ironic uh, take on the on the pulp fiction of the day. Edgar Rice Burroughs got his start in the same uh, in the same milieu. He wrote for Argosy All Story a lot. Uh, writers like Francis Stevens, um, C. L. Moore. There wasn't as much of a distinction between say, science fiction, fantasy, or uh, adventure, just adventure writing as there is now. Although a lot of the pulps were specialized. Some of them specialized in sea stories, specialized in South sea stories, specialized in pirate stories, specialized in Zeppelin adventures or pro boxing, you know, westerns, uh, detectives. That's where the noir, whole noir school comes from originally. And uh, a lot of writers wrote across many different fields. Uh, Howard did, for example. He did, of course, the Conan stories, which have become so famous. He did other types of secondary world fantasy like that. But he also wrote sea stories, uh, historical adventures, even did uh, boxing, and wrote for one that was called spicy adventure stories, which was very, very, very mildly erotic, but <laughs> by the standards of the time, rather daring.
0: Yes. So... So anyway, so you found these,
1: these help you? Oh, God, yes. There's a number of different things that are essential to writing a good story. Uh, and, of course, different types of stories vary immensely. There's, like You can do the classical literature stuff like Henry James. Now, Henry James was a magnificently talented writer, and I would rather juggle live squid in a laundromat than have to read his stuff again. Um, I haven't since I was assigned it in university. Right. It's just not my cup of tea. Um, But you can tell if you're a writer and you read his stuff, you can tell that the technique is like magnificent. Other writers get by on just having sheer driving narrative power. In some ways, they believe in what they're writing. It's real to them while they're writing it. Um, Robert E. Howard was like that. He's surprisingly good in a technical sense. For example, he doesn't use too many adjectives. Um, But he manages to make you feel like he's describing things very densely because of the intensity of what he writes now some of it was formulaic he was making his living at it it was the 30s um he was the most prosperous guy in town but that was like cross plains texas in the 1930s so that didn't take much um but mostly it has this enormous narrative drive because he really believed it he used to shout bits of dialogue while he was typing uh and act out scenes as he was walking along everyone thought he was crazy i've run into the same thing um (laughs) Hubbard is a more sophisticated writer than that. You can tell that he's got narrative intensity because, say, his action scenes in things like Typewriter in the Sky or uh, The Slaves of Sleep or some of the uh, old Doc Methuselah stories, which I'm rereading right now, uh, are very good. Uh, And his plots can be very complex. Uh, The Slaves of Sleep uh, has a complex plot that involves, like family shenanigans, as well as uh, crossing over into another world. Typewriter in the Sky has a magnificently complicated plot, but it doesn't get in the way. It's a straightforward action story, but it's also got a multi-layered uh, meta approach to fiction and to reality that's uh, that's vastly amusing if you, you know, reread it and take the time to look at the underlying structures. So, uh, you yeah, know, it was v- it was very impressive stuff. I learned a lot from it. It's Uh, interesting you say
0: that about about that because that's been – there's been a few of of our – between judges like Mike Resnick, that was his favorite story because of the meta uh, aspect of of what it was. Um, Mm -hmm. But also there was another um, um, instructor um, who taught – I forget which university it was right now. um, Mm -hmm. But he used it to teach writers uh, science fiction about the history of science fiction and the whole meta thing about, you know, just – making fun of him, you know, how he's able to make fun of himself. Some of those names that he meets up in the bar at the end of that book, those are his, mm-hmm. pen, those are his pen names.
1: Yeah. Yeah, he, he did that. There's a whole, there's wheels within wheels within wheels in that book. And the resolution is sort of open-ended because you can't tell whether the protagonist has escaped this immersion in fiction that becomes reality. And it, it's just hilarious. And it's very deathly done. That was done by someone who was really in command of his material. But at the same time, you can tell that he loved the stuff he was writing because there's a, a, a uh, blood and thunder pirate romance adventure thing running all the way through it. And that's done well too. It's not mocked except very gently and with affection. And it's actually a good example of its kind. Good as anything that Jeffrey Farnell or uh, Sabatini wrote. Uh, But uh, it's, it's, encapsulated in something bigger. Yeah. Considering that it's a fairly short book, it's amazing that he was able to get all that stuff into it. Uh, is it all right to say things about the plot? Sure. Okay. Yeah. The, the plot starts with uh, a would-be musician in Greenwich Village uh, in the 30s visiting a friend who's a pulp, pulp fiction writer and who has spent the advance he got from a publisher but hasn't written anything, so he's frantically trying to catch up. And... The aspiring uh, musician goes into the bathroom, accidentally electrocutes himself, and finds himself in the book that his uh, friend, the pulp writer, is writing. Horace Hackett. Yeah. Horace Hackett is the writer. And Hackett is, of course, a play on words, hacking it out. And uh, Mike DeWolf Mm -hmm. is uh, is the friend. And he ends up as Miguel de Lobo. Uh, a Spanish admiral in the 17th century Caribbean fighting pirates. Of course, the pirate uh, is the hero. And Mike realizes that he's the villain. And he knows what happens to the villains in his friends' stories. So he frantically tries to not make all the stupid mistakes that villains in his friend's stories do once he realizes that he's there and can somehow speak Spanish fluently and everyone recognizes him as the admiral. And every time he's he's about to pull the fortunes of Miguel de Lobo out of the the sink, he hears a typewriter writing in the sky and either it skips ahead and everything's been wiped out or uh, people don't respond rationally to what he's saying and he's straight back into the... uh, into the buildup to the conclusion where the pirate hero destroys him. So he finally figures out a way around it and gets back to New York City. And well, first he manages to make an escape with a considerable amount of treasure and the girl. And then he gets back to New York City and he's so relieved. And then he wonders, how do I know I'm not in a fiction now? And he looks up and tells himself, am I really seeing this giant godlike figure in a tattered bathrobe writing up there? <laughs> <laughs> it's marvelous it's it's just hilarious it's a really good piece of work and it's 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 a good story and it's also a meditation on story and writing i can't recommend it enough great thank you for that that's that's great and i've, I've enjoyed it as you
0: said when you're writing the, as you're writing the introduction you're in your own bathrobe
1: yeah i was writing a tattered bathrobe too so there are things about that book that it will appeal to anyone, and there are other things that will particularly appeal to writers, particularly if you're doing genre fiction. I mean, the, the field has changed since the, since the 30s and 40s, of course, but certain things have not changed.
0: Yeah, yeah. Which is, which is why like doing this podcast is really important so that it, it lets the writers know, like, okay, here's yeah you know, the big writers everybody i've talked to who's, who's a major influence in in popular fiction, they mm-hmm. read a lot you know it's just it's so important you can't write stuff without reading and knowing you know your roots where does stuff come from you know and you take a take a look at the modern movies of today um mm-hmm. going back even to star wars
1: that was that all came from pulp fiction you know yeah. uh, that came from pulp fiction science fiction and general adventure fiction the indiana jones uh movies were um a meditation on the serial adventure movies that were common uh, up until the 1950s. I've seen a couple of them. They used to replay them at the the school in my neighborhood in the early sixties. I was convinced I was Ming the Merciless for a while. (laughs) Uh, I had a vivid imagination. Let's say I was telling people stories when I was six years old. Um, I wrote my first book. uh, Well, tried to write my first book in my teens. And it was more or less a sort of mashup of all the authors I liked. Uh, It's, what they call fan fiction these days, but of many different, different writers. And then, you know, when I got into high school, the, my last years in high school, I had the only writing course that's ever been really helpful to me, apart from opportunities to read things. The teacher had three of us, and he said, you're gonna write a book this year. And he gave us paper, and he said, we'll meet once a week and read what each, uh, each will read, the, uh, read out what they've done, and we'll talk about it. And if you have problems, come and see me and i wrote a book that uh, that year and when i was about i think 17 and it was a terrible book it was still more or less fanfic and pastiche but it was vastly improved and just writing it taught me enormously uh, valuable things about the about the craft of writing and so did discussing it with people who were in the same in in my shoes too i've always been grateful for that most people don't get that sort of opportunity for sure uh, some people make bigger progress. There's a friend of mine, Patricia Finney, she's a writer mostly of historical stuff, but also science, some science fiction, lives in, she's English. And uh, she wrote her first book, "Call of Gulls and followed by uh, the Crow Goddess." Their historical fiction set in the heroic age of Ireland. Cúchulainn is is one of the heroes. She wrote that at 17 and had it published while she was at uh, Oxford University. Now I just turn green with envy every time I think of that because that's <laughs> actually a very good book. And I spent years tracking down the sequel. I finally, by correspondence, managed to locate a copy in a used bookstore in the South Island of New Zealand, and paid money I couldn't afford at the time to get to get it. And it's it's really really good. She's doing some uh, some marvelous stuff now. She also publishes under P.F. Chisholm, stuff set in the Elizabethan period. And uh, she really knows the history there too. And you would not believe some of the history of that period. Wow. Like you know that a lot of the guns in the Spanish Maramata were actually bought from England.
0: Really? Wow.
1: <laughs> yeah. The Spanish had a, had a terrible shortage of good cannon and the British were exporting them at the time. So they sold a lot of them to the Spanish, but most of them were subtly sabotaged. Wow! So so the English crown was collecting the export royalties on these guns and at at the same time ensuring that a lot of them would blow up if you tried to use them.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that stuff probably still goes on.
1: Elizabeth I is another one of my heroes, like Teddy Roosevelt. And you know, she was a lot like her dad, Henry VIII. But Henry VIII never learned discipline himself. He was smart. And he had a forceful personality. Strong men would still blanch and sh- and shake when they walked past his portrait years later. But he he couldn't discipline him, is, is himself. He couldn't control his impulses. His daughter Elizabeth, who looked like him, you know, she was a, a a red a redhead like he was, and she had a temper too. And she was also very intelligent. But she used her intelligence and used her own temper as uh, as instruments of rule. And you know, of course, she was one of the most successful monarchs in British history. And he, mildly, was not. Um, famous m- mostly for chopping the heads off princesses.
0: Right. Uh,
1: if she hadn't been able to control herself, she would have been executed during the reign of her sister Mary and, and that sort of thing. And she was almost infinitely patient. That was why she w- eventually won her confrontation with Philip of Spain. She could wait, and she knew exactly how long to draw things out. And, you know, Philip had a much bigger country, much richer. Spain ruled an enormous co- whole continents at the time, and the British were a primitive kingdom on the edge of nowhere. But uh, she tied him down and tired him out and exhausted him while not exhausting her own country. It was uh, it was a magnificent Bravera performance, but it was subtle. You don't think of the Elizabethan era as subtle. There's no. people like Drake Hawkins, but she she was subtle.
0: Wow. She was a spider. Yeah. And
1: everyone underestimated her because she was a woman, of course. For sure. And she took advantage of that every time she could.
0: Yeah. So now, when we have I you know, said so we've got the aspiring writers and so now you're obviously a full-time author who you make your living with, with your writings. How did that progression go? How do you, when you started, obviously you weren't making your living as a writer, but you're, you're moving that direction. Can you briefly describe your, your timeline so other people who are aspiring to be in a position where they can like live off the, the fruits of their writing?
1: Okay. First, there's a large element of luck. Writing is one of those professions when there are where there are millions and millions of people who want to do it, but only a few thousand actually get to. I think there's about five or six thousand full-time fiction writers in uh, the United States, and that includes like all branches of fiction. There are tens of thousands who get published but actually have a day job. So one of the mottos of the beginning writer is don't quit your day job. But there are millions of people who think they can write. One of the basic functions of publishing is to screen out the people who think they can write from the people who actually can write. If you think that some of the stuff that gets published is bad, you should see what goes into the slush piles. Uh, I had a friend who was a first reader for a publishing company, and she used to send me what she called her funny file. Um, 600 page epics about an undersized paper bag from uh, Louisville, Kentucky, uh, who had self-esteem problems because he was smaller than the other paper bags, so went on a journey to find himself. I'm not kidding. Wow. Um, There was another one about a guy who was shipwrecked on the Sea Islands off the coast of Georgia as a child and raised by the family goat. Um, I quote, being raised by the family goat had took its toll of him. (laughs) So one of the first pieces of advice I give to aspiring writers is do you desperately need to do this? If you don't desperately need to do this, you don't really have much chance because you're going to meet a lot of rejection. Um, the other thing is things like reading a lot, listening to your own work and trying to improve it. Writers groups can really help. They've helped me. I've been in a number of them. Uh, on the other hand, if you get into the wrong writers group, it can be a bad influence and workshops like Clarion and, um, and various workshops and conventions and so forth. They can also be a, uh, a real help reading. Again, reading a lot, reading both fiction and, and nonfiction. Mm-hmm. And then persistence. You've got to finish, start things, you've got to finish them, and you've got to send them out for publication. Now, these days, publishing has changed a lot since I broke in in the 80s. It's uh, more concentrated in the mainstream publishers. There was a lot more small press. And independent publishing is no longer a sentence of death. It was once a mark of someone who couldn't actually get real publishing, so he did it himself. Nowadays, you can actually um, make some make some progress with it. And there are many more small presses. And the fact that online book buying is such a big thing has uh, helped with that because it, it cuts down on the capital overhead costs. You need to get a book out. Uh, I started back when publishing was more or less the way it had been for most of the 20th century. I started sending out stories uh, in the 1970s. I, uh, I had gone to law school because my mother wanted me, have, me to have something solid to fall back on. If my writing didn't pan out, this was her gentle way of saying that most people who want to write for a living don't. Uh, They end up waiting tables like actors in Hollywood. And I did go to law school, and it was just like a total waste of time for me, except that I developed some more research skills. I wrote my first novel while I was at law school, Snow Brother, and that's why it's full of death and hatred and violence and that sort of thing. Because I didn't enjoy the experience at law school at all, although I didn't go crazy like several of my classmates. I did this in Canada, which is where I was at the time. In Canada, you article for a year. uh, It's more or less like an apprenticeship or or an internship. You spend a year working minimum wage at a law firm, and then you do your last six months at the bar admission course after doing three years of law school beforehand. I did the whole thing, got called to the bar. The person I articled with, well, no, the second person I articled with, the first one was dragged away because he saw things crawling up his legs, and we found a lot of half-empty bottles around the office afterwards. The second one was disbarred. In fact, he had four disbarment proceedings against him at the same time. Um, he was the most dishonest human being I've ever met. Like, he, uh, he had to do pro bono work, which lawyers in Canada do. So he used to defend child abusers and rapists because it was a challenge.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, he had four sets of books, one for the government, one for himself, one for himself and his wife, and one for himself and his wife's relatives. Uh, none of them agreed with each other. Uh, he made millions. He was a very successful lawyer, and he blew it on things like chains of restaurants. Like he had a client. He'd, he'd get, encourage clients to invest in his companies. Then he'd roll the assets out and leave them holding the debts, things like that. Wow. He had one client who was an uh, immigrant who started a little grocery business and, and made a success of it and lived over the, the store. And the place burned down. And there was some suspicion of arson since several bleach cans full of gasoline were found out back after the fire. And they didn't collect any of the insurance money because there was suspicion of arson. But the guy I articled with had the mortgage on the property, so he collected And they came into the office. They'd run out in their pajamas. The place went up like a matchhead. And I saw this with my own eyes. The head of the family got down on his knees and grabbed Constantine, that was the guy's name, by his his, uh, pants and begged him to help them because they'd lost everything they'd worked for for 15 years. And Constantine put his foot on the guy's chest and pushed him over backwards. Now, that's another instance of the sort of thing that you can't really put into a book. You know, people say, give your your villains more motivations than sheer evil and greed and that sort of thing. But I've met people who are consumed by evil and greed. The only thing I can say for Constantine is that he wasn't mobbed up, but some of his friends were. And I asked one of them what it was like being a mafia lawyer. And he said, well, the money's good and the work's interesting, but you can't quit. <laughs> So anyway, but that was actually valuable experience. I, I learned a few things in that. And I, as I said, I wrote my first novel, and I had a number of stories rejected, one of them by Marion Zimmer Bradley. And looking back on it, I realized that she was right to reject that novella because it was terrible. I actually sold it later, but the magazine in Britain I sold it to went under, and it was published 18 years later after three obsessive purchases of assets and I got like a quarter cent a word on it and uh it was embarrassing because it was a juvenile effort then I lucked out first I sold a short story to Jim Bain who was at that time uh doing a series of uh, anthologies he called me up from New York and told me he wanted to buy the story and I of course was overjoyed this was my first real professional sale uh and he said but I want you to work on the ending because it's ambiguous um, now, I didn't think the ending was ambiguous at all, but I was perfectly willing to go along with him because I would have crawled to New York naked over broken glass, pulling myself along with my lips to get published at that point. <laughs> so we talked around it for 15 minutes, and then I realized that I had not sent the last page. of the story. <laughs> and, you know, this was hard copy submissions in those days. And by God, you know, without the last page, the story was ambiguous. So we cleared that up, and he published that. And then I, um, I did my first novel, which Sheila Gilbert, who was then at um, Signet NAL, bought. Um, I think I told you that I had to change that to make it more fantasy, mm-hmm. put in an evil wizard and an extra 20,000 words. Yeah. Uh, and At that point, I thought I'd broken through into the broad sunlit uplands of uh, writerdom, and I had a re- rejection-slip burning party. I invited all my friends over, and I took a German helmet that my father brought back from Europe after the late Great Unpleasantness, and I put all the rejection slips in the um, helmet, and I set it on fire. i still got the ashes. Uh, and then Sheila Gilbert left an has NAL and went to another publishing company, DAW. And she we'd had a verbal understanding that I would write a couple of sequels to the book. And I was beavering away on those, and six months later, and I hadn't heard, and I called up and got in touch with the new editor, who said, oh, I'm sorry about that. We bought some Arthur C. Clarke reprint rights, so we're bumping some of our midlist, maybe next year. (laughs) So I wasn't working as a lawyer, because after articling with a guy who was disbarred Constantine was you couldn't uh, I applied for a few positions and they asked me who did you article with and I'd say so-and-so and And they'd say oh so-and-so don't call us we'll call you so I was doing odd jobs I spent five or six years doing various types of work I I picked tobacco for a summer I was in a migrant workers barracks I did a lot of uh, temp clerking jobs some of them at law firms I was a bouncer for two nights Uh, I quit Not because of the violence, but because I was puked on both nights. That's what happens if you take a belligerent drunk and grab them around the waist and start hauling them out. They (laughs) throw up on. That (laughs) denim jacket was never the same. And I liked that denim jacket. So um, I quit that. I was getting by hand to mouth. Um, The thing about that is it's a traditional stage in a writer's or any artist's, uh, uh, you know, Career, they they look back on it and they they look back on it with affection, at the crazy things they did to make a living, at the horrible places they had to live, at the weird neighbors they had, and I had some weird neighbors. But uh, the thing is, at the time when you're doing the odd jobs, you don't know that you're going to make a success of it. You have no assurance that you're ever going to uh, break through and actually manage to make a significant income from your writing. I did. I wrote my first book. I met. Uh, my wife, Janet, at a world fantasy convention. We courted at two other world fantasy conventions, and I proposed at the world fantasy convention in, I think it was Memphis, Tennessee. So, um, you know, we got married, this was 88. Uh, And then I sold Marching Through Georgia, which was the beginning of an alternate history series, to Bain Books. And working together, we managed to eke out a living, more or less, uh, and I went full-time in 1988 at that time we had no assurance that the funds wouldn't like completely dry up and I'd have to get some other sort of job. Um, things gradually improved. Then I had a falling out with, uh, Jim Bain, who was editor of Bain books at the time. He's passed on now, a brilliant guy, but he had his crotchets and I turned in a book, Island in the Sea of Time, uh, which I contracted for with him. And he didn't like the fact that the lead character was uh, black, a female and gay. And you know, we had this tremendous row about it. At one point he said, why can't you make this a white guy from Montana? And I said, I already have a white guy from Montana in the book. And he said, yeah, but he's the villain. And we just went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Eventually he agreed to publish it, but I knew it would be dropped into a hole. Um, He said at uh, one point, I can't make the readers eat shit. So I yanked it. And paid back the advance, which I could not, frankly, afford to do. Harry Turtledove, who's been a friend of mine for a long time, advised me to go to Russell Galen as an agent. Among other, among Jim Bain's other crotchets was that he didn't like his authors to have agents. said they didn't need them. He'd look after them. Which, to be fair, he often did. Um, Russ read it over the weekend and came back and said he'd like to try to sell it. And I said, did you like it? And he said, it's a thousand pages long. There's only two ways to get me to read a thousand page manuscript in a weekend. One is that if I like it, and the other is to stick a gun up my nose. So, uh, since I hadn't been there standing over him with a gun, I presumed he liked it, and it sold within two weeks. Actually, it sold to two different publishing companies once uh, Tor made an offer on it, and uh, Penguin made an offer on it. Now, at that point, Tor was uh, had a much bigger science fiction line, and they would publish it in original hardcover, which is a sort of prestige thing. Laura Ann Gilman was the editor at Penguin, and she was just starting out, uh, starting up their science fiction line, a new science fiction line for them. Uh, Russ advised me to go with her because he said she's young, she's hungry, she'll push it. So even though it was mass market paperback rather than original hardcover, I went with her. Now, uh, That was Island in the Sea of Time, and I published it in 1998. And it's now in its 30 second printing. So frankly, Jim was wrong. I was right and Jim was wrong and I get to sing the I was right song. <laughs> but uh, so I, I, I wrote uh, two more books uh, that were sequels to that. Then I did Dies the Fire. That took off. The fourth book in the Dies the Fire series really took off and hit the New York Times list. And as the saying goes, I haven't looked back since. But a lot of that was luck. It was hitting the right editor on the right day. You see, editors are inundated with material. Um, Many publish, say, a couple of hundred books a year, and they get sixty or 70,000 submissions. They have first readers just to strain out the illiterate stuff and the undersized paper bags with self-esteem issues. Then the editors go through, and if they meet anything they don't like, they generally toss it because they're very busy and generally grossly underpaid, I might add. Sure. So, um, you know, you've got to hit the right editor on the right day with the right stuff that appeals to them and then you've got to hit off with the public and you can't predict what will hit off with the public, you know, unless you've got a successful series in which case it'll often build. Although these days, um, editors don't usually have the final say in a lot of publishing houses, that's accountants and MBAs. And they think that there's some magic method of picking out bestsellers, uh, immediately. So they, they tend to starve series, uh, before they have a chance to build, but that's a a pet writer's piece. Right. Um, so, you know, you've got to hit the right editor on the right day with the right stuff, and then it's got to appeal to the public. Most books don't make back their publishing costs. And most of the publishing costs are the editorial function. The, the actual physical paper and, uh, and printing stuff is only about 11 to 15% of the cost of bringing out a new book. But even so, most books don't, don't earn out their advance. That's how it works. You get an advance from the publisher. Uh, against an advance against royalties, and then if it earns out, if the royalties are more than the advance, you get the royalties, which can be anything from five to 15% usually. Most books don't earn out. Most of mine have. Some of them took 10 or 15 years to earn out, others earned out in the first uh, reporting period of six months, but most books that are published, even books that sell reasonably well and get good reviews, don't earn out. So, from the publisher's point of view, they're only making a very modest profit on that. Publishing is a low return industry, usually around five percent on capital, which is not great, right? And every generation someone comes in and thinks they can turn publishing into a high return industry. They figure that if only I could do all the books like that book that made us a lot of money, um, then uh, you know the, there would be an ad- adequate return. And the thing is you can't pick those books in advance. Most of them are like total surprises. There's a book, uh, a little fantasy book I'm I'm rather fond of called Tea with the Black Dragon, um, written by, um, oh, I think R.A. McAvoy. And she was rejected 14 times before she sold that. And it did actually reasonably well, not like a, a tearing bestseller, but it, it got good reviews and it sold moderately well. And she sold it to the first publisher she'd sent it to, but she'd gone through 14 others and come back and they had a new editor. So she sent it to that one and uh, they took it. So, you know, it's a bit of a crapshoot. You can try, you can be talented, you can work real hard, and you can still fall flat on your face if you don't have some luck. So don't quit your day job. Don't count on making a living from writing until you're actually making a living from writing. Um, <clears throat> that's know.
0: that's That makes sense, and that's very good advice. In terms of, for somebody to discover S.M. Sterling if they've not read it, and there might be a couple different answers to this question, what do you recommend that somebody read to uh, get, you know, to be introduced to your, to your writing? Like I said, for me, it was The Black Chamber, but um, anything else to
1: expand on that? Yeah. Well, I like to think that I've improved. The first book that I was really completely satisfied in looking back on it and still me completely satisfied with was uh, Island in the Sea of Time, which is the first of a trilogy. Uh, that came out in 1998. It, you can get it on Amazon. Dies the Fire, which I wrote uh, about four years later, was the start of a long series. That did very well, and I'm also quite satisfied with Dies the Fire and most of its sequels. I've written some standalones, not part of series. The Peshawar Lancers is a good one if you like the Pulp Adventure. It's my own homage or tribute to the Pulp Adventure genre. Uh, And Conquistador, which is a sort of cross-time adventure set in California, several different Californias, Uh, is also, I think, pretty good. Like most authors, I'm most entranced with what I'm working on now, which is the series that began with uh, Black Chamber, went on through Theater of Spies and Shadows of Annihilation. And I've just started a second trilogy in that universe called Daggers in Darkness. And this is the one that has Luz O'Malley and Kira Whelan and Teddy Roosevelt. And a number of historical characters come in. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover has a bit part as a young man, for one. And I'm really satisfied with that, and I've been having a lot of fun with it. And I think it's fun to read. Yeah. Well, definitely
0: the one was very fun to read, so I'm sure the
1: rest of them will, too, because it's a great character. Great characters, I should say. Thank you. Sorry, there's an old joke. Um, How many writers does it take to change a light bulb? And Um, the answer is the writer says, forget about that. Let me tell you about my light bulb. (laughs) So, yeah. Here we go. There's your light bulb. Asking a writer about his own work is that, has that problem.
0: Well, that's good. I appreciate that. And then they can just find, obviously, on Amazon. You're obviously in the various bookstores, Barnes & Noble, or anywhere else where people can buy books. And your,
1: your own website is? smsterling.com. Correct. Uh, all lowercase, no, um, no gaps. That's S-M-S-T-I-R-L-I-N-G. It, one of my lifelong frustrations is that people spell my name with an E.
0: Yeah. You are gold, but it's not with an E. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, thank you very much, Steve. And thank you for listening to this uh, podcast. You can listen to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network, where you can find these podcasts as well by just typing in Writers of the Future. Again, I highly recommend you read the Writers of the Future series. These are, after all, who our judges have selected as the best of the best new writers and artists. They can be found at writersthefuture.com, at Amazon, or wherever you get your books. And also, as Steve was mentioning on Typewriter in the Sky, you can find that on Amazon as well. Writers and illustrators of the future are contests created by Elwin Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Steve.
1: You're welcome.